Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who was a member of the 1988 U.S. Olympic hockey team. He went on to play left wing on a line with Mario Lemieux during the Penguins' back-to-back Stanley Cup championships in 1991 and 92. During his career, he played with the Pittsburgh Penguins, Boston Bruins, Los Angeles Kings, New York Rangers, and Philadelphia Flyers. Starting with the 1989-90 NHL season, he became one of the top left wings and power forwards in the league. He had four consecutive seasons of at least 40 goals and 80 points from 1990 to 1994, surpassed the 50-goal mark and 100 points, in 91 and 92 and 92 and 93. His 123 points in the 91-92 NHL season set a record for the most points by an American-born player in left wing in one season. May 14, 1993, the Penguins were playing the New York Islanders in Game 7 of the Patrick Division Finals, a game and an instant that would change in lives his life in ways you cannot imagine. It is a pleasure to welcome two-time Stanley Cup champion Kevin Stevens, WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Kevin. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure and Ryan's pleasure. You know, Ryan didn't get the opportunity to see you play. He's a little younger, so he didn't have that opportunity. I certainly did, and I did enjoy your years here in New York. Um, it's interesting because over the 10 years of doing the show, we've chronicled so many athletes and what drugs have taken from them and their road back. I followed your career very closely, and I'm happy about the place you are in now and want to share that you know, journey with our audience. You know, addiction of any kind can strike anybody, and I think it's important for people to know that your childhood, as your sister called it, was Norman Rockwell-esque. Your dad, Arthur Stevens, or as everyone called him, Artie, was beloved in the community. He was a star athlete in his day. He made it to the, the minors as a catcher in the Cincinnati Reds system. What was your childhood like growing up? Yeah, my childhood was, was good. You know, we're a middle-class family. Uh, I had two older sisters. I was the only boy in the family. I was, uh, I was an athlete, guys. I played three. I played baseball, I played football, and I played hockey. So there was... Uh, and I loved everything about it. You know, I didn't. That's what I wanted to do. It wasn't like I was forced to do anything. Was, you know, that's that's what I like to do. I like to play baseball all summer. I like to play hockey when it's hockey season. I like to play football for a few months. So, growing up, I had it pretty good. It's, um, you know, it's, it's just it's one of those things. You know, like you talk about addiction and things like that. But you know, we can get in that a little bit later. But my addiction kind of hit me at a late age. So my younger years, my younger days. We're great. You know, I, I grew up, like I said, in a middle-class family. I had everything I needed and everything I wanted. I just liked to play sports. I loved the Bruins. I loved the Patriots. I loved the Red Sox. I loved the Celtics. I loved everything about Boston sports. <laughs> Kevin, I, I'm trying to make people here in New York like you. Do not say <laughs> about – don't talk about the Patriots or the Red Sox, all right? Let's, uh-huh. You can just gloss over that. According to, to a Pembroke, uh, the town in Boston, just south of Boston, legend – your first year of competitive ice hockey as a six-year-old, you scored 175 goals. Is that true? Wow. Yeah, I, I scored a lot of goals. I don't know how many goals it was, but it was. Um, I kind of just excelled, kind of at a young age. But I, I, you know, I liked to play. My dad never skated before, so hockey was kind of like something. I like I, I don't know if you guys probably don't have cranberry bogs, kind of where I live. I lived across some cranberry bogs, and they froze those things in the winter. And that's where I really learned how to skate is out there in the bogs and skating with my neighbors and my my friends that I grew up next to and 
playing street hockey. And then, you know, for some reason I played hockey. And it was kind of weird. It was just one of those things that kind of fell into it. But I kind of played all sports growing up. So it was just, uh, just that time of year. And I kind of excelled at that. It was, it was fun. It's interesting you say that, that you, you, you just kind of glossed over the fact that you played all the sports. Uh, you made every high school varsity team. You were so good in baseball. And while you felt your best sport was baseball, you received invitations to try out for both the Blue Jays and Philadelphia Phillies. You drew the attention of Boston College for both baseball and hockey. Before your first year in college, you're drafted in the sixth round by the Kings. I saw an article back in May of 91 in the Pittsburgh Press where you were quoted as saying, baseball was always your first love. Have you ever reflected on what your life might have been if you followed the course of baseball instead of hockey? Yeah, I look at it sometimes, guys, but it's, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I really enjoyed playing. I was playing baseball. Like, I have older kids now that, you know, they didn't really like lacrosse team in this area. They like lacrosse, so they like, you know, they like playing hockey now. They, everybody plays hockey 12 months a year if you're really good, so it's kind of crazy. But, but I like I like changing the season. I like playing hockey for four months, five months, and baseball for six months. And I really, I was a catcher. I enjoyed baseball. I love playing baseball. I, I love just being on teams. I'm one of these guys. I was a rink rat. I love being at the baseball field all day. So it's kind of, I'm just, I was just very into, into sports and playing. And I love baseball, but it's, it's hard. You know, it's hard to make anything, guys. I'm not sure. You know. How my path would have went if I went and tried to play baseball? Who knows? You know. Well, the hockey path was a pretty good one as well. With a chance to go pro in either sport, full ride to play hockey for Boston College on the table. You go the college route. You graduate with a degree in economics, along with scoring 70 points in 39 games as a senior. You're named to the 1986 U.S. national team and the big daddy of them all, the 1988 Olympic hockey team. Pembroke, your hometown, held a parade in your honor ahead of the Calgary Games. So it's not. What's it like not only to be named? to the Olympic team to, to, you know, go out there for your country and to get a parade in your hometown as well. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it's kind of like all, when it happens back then, you're kind of like, you know, not really sure what's going on. You're kind of young and, you know, you, you make the Olympic team. The Olympic team was great because, you know, the guys, there we we're all college guys. So it was when the amateurs, like now the amateurs are back playing, but, in 88, it was kind of the last year where the amateurs played. Or I might have had one more year of that. But in 88, it was all my college friends, like Brian Leach, Richter, you know, all, a lot of guys, uh, Stephen Leach, Lavalette, who coaches the Predators, you know, a lot of, a lot of Scotty Young, who I work with in Pittsburgh, just a lot of great guys, all great guys, all guys I grew up playing against in college, BU guys, Wisconsin guys, all Minnesota guys, and it was just so much fun. We traveled around and we, for eight months before the Olympics. And you know, it was that first taste of like getting out there and just having hockey as your number one thing. There was no school. There was no nothing. All we did was get up, eat breakfast, and skate four hours a day and work out. And it was, it was a great, great thing. And uh, very fortunate, very lucky to be on that team. Yeah, not, not too shabby. Granado, Leach, Janney, yourself, Mike Richter, pretty good stuff back then. Yeah. You make the jump to the NHL, as we mentioned, win back-to-back Stanley Cups, and for a 13-year period, Wayne Gretzky would lead the league in points. In that 13-year period, there were only two men to get more points than him in a single season. That was you and Mario Lemieux in the 1991-92 season. So for our listeners out there who might not have seen yeah. Kevin play, let me say that again. There were only two men who outscored Wayne Gretzky in a single season during his prime, one of which was Kevin Stevens. 
When you sit back and reflect on that, what's the first thing that goes that comes to your mind when you hear that? It's kind of craziness, you know. I'm good friends with Crest too, so it's kind of like I played with him in New York, and it's you know, I don't I don't love in any of those guys' league. You know, it was one of those years where Mario was banged up a little bit too. I think that was a year. I was actually ahead of Mario. I was like, you know, Mario was my lineman. He was kind of hurt. I'm like, you know, trying to feel him out. I'm leading the league in scoring, trying to feel him out, seeing when he's going to come back, you know. And he, uh, and he comes back. And I'm like 15 points ahead of him. He comes back and plays the last 12 games. He beats me by like 20 points. <laughs> wow. You know, those guys, and Mario, like, you know, they're in the league of their own that way. They just know how to get points. They're not a player. They're so smart. And, uh, you know, I was more of a, Kind of just got lucky to play with some of those guys. It got hot at times. I could score some goals and kept played a very simple game. And I had good sentiment. So, you know, when you have I had Johnny Cullen out of BU was the first guy to play with him. Roddy Francis, guy I played with Mario. So, you know, for a stretch there, I had some great sentiment that want the puck. So those guys, you know, make the plays, and I kind of get to the net and open up some ice. And you know, we had pretty good stuff going on. I had some great sentiment though. Here's something that I want to ask you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind as well? Um, those back-to-back Stanley Cup teams, there was a guy on that team that just you know, retired from the NHL this week. When you think of that, you know, think of how long ago that Stanley Cup back-to-back was and that Yaramir Yager up to a week ago was still playing in the NHL. What, yeah. what, do, you, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling, really. It's kind of one of those things where you really just – you know, you take him for granted a little bit because, you know, we all knew he was going to play for a while, and he was great when he came in. When he came in, he was kind of a rookie the first year or two when we won a cup. So he, you know, he was playing on the third line, but he was getting 15, 20 goals, but he was getting like 10 highlight real goals. You're kind of like, oh, man, this guy's going to this guy's gonna be something. He's so strong, and he can skate, and he works so hard. So another, like, I think he was picked fifth or sixth in the draft. He didn't draw, you know, he wasn't drafted first, and we got him. Pittsburgh, and we're so fortunate. He got so many big goals for us, and you know his longevity. It's crazy, and that's like like Gretzky's got so many more points than everybody. Everybody talks he's better. Gretz, Mario, these guys. You know, it's like, and, and, and you know, I love Mario. I played with him. I think he's you know the most talented guy I've ever seen. But Gretz playing that longevity and scoring, he's got a thousand more points than anybody. You know, it's like it's hard to hard to argue that you know getting two fifteen, two twenty, some of these years. It's amazing how the how, how how the games change a little bit on that side. Absolutely, they were phenomenal players. On May twenty first, nineteen ninety two, during Game three of the conference final against the Bruins, you become only the twenty fifth player in NHL history to score three goals in a single playoff period, scoring a hat trick in the first. You'd add one more goal before the end of the game. Penguins sweep the Bruins and sweep the Blackhawks to their win their second straight Stanley Cup. You're a player entering his prime on the rise. Two hundred nineteen goals by age twenty eight. Mm-hmm. All of that changes in an instant. May 14, 1993, the Penguins playing the New York Islanders. Game 7 of the Patrick Division Finals. Early in the first period, you skated in, checked Islanders. Defenseman Rich Pilon hitting Pilon's visor with such force that you actually knocked yourself out. You landed face-first on the ice and Mabel, you know, not able to soften the blow upon landing. Shattered most of the bones in your face. You carried off the ice on a stretcher, rushed to the hospital where a surgeon used nine metal plates to reconstruct your forehead, and your nose was also rebuilt at the time. What, if anything, do you remember about that? And I, you know, I have to ask you this because people that didn't know your story and knew you were coming on actually looked on YouTube, and that's out there. Have you ever viewed it again as well? 
I've I've seen it from like different clips. Like I I don't really go on YouTube and see it, but I've seen it a few times where it kind of uh, you know if you really watch the whole hit, I I really got a good piece of peel. Peel on like me and Rich Peel on, we battled for a long time. The Islanders, you know, back back in the old Patrick Division days when I was playing, like, we played the Islanders eight times, the Rangers eight times, back to back games all over the place, Washington, Philly. You know, we played a lot of rival games and. and that was, you know, we were going for our third cup. It was our best team. You know, we should we won two in a row, and that happened kind of the second shift of the game. I got a penalty ten seconds into the into the game with another guy, so we're sitting for two minutes. I come off out of there, and I, I kind of I see Pilon taking the net, and he had hurt his eye the night before. He usually doesn't wear a shield, but he had a, he got hit in the eye the night before, so he had a shield, and he kind of led with his head, and I hit head on with him, and kind of. Um, it hit me in the temple, so it kind of knocked me out. And then uh, from there, it was, um, you know, I was out, so I couldn't really put my hands down. And I broke some bones in my face. And, you know, from there, it was got kind of a little tough, you know. Absolutely. And it's just so strange. You're right. I mean, he is a player that normally didn't wear a visor and just the yeah. way, you know, life changes in an instant. Um, yeah. You mentioned that your first encounter with drugs had come a couple of months before the injury. Uh, you, ba- you had said you yeah. stated, uh, stored cocaine in a bar in Manhattan. You point to that night as the beginning of your struggle with addiction, but most people that know you seem to point to the injury and the heavy use of painkillers during your recovery that ignited the spiral. Whatever the spark, uh, you're no longer the same person. On the ice, you went from a player on the road yeah. to the Hall of Fame to a player that was probably closer to a beer league than the Hall of Fame. Teammates yeah. knew something was up, but so many of them had attributed it to the injury, and, and who wouldn't? Um, before the 94-95 season, you're signed with the Bruins, hoping to play for your home team would be a fresh start. That lasts only 40 games. You're traded to the Kings. You played out the rest of that season and all of the next in L.A., and with the Kings, you enroll in the NHL substance abuse program for the first time. Obviously, at that point, the first time it's held completely confidential. Who or why did you get enrolled into that program, and, and who was the force behind getting you into that? Yeah, um, I'll tell you a little bit how how it all kind of how, how this thing all went down. Like I was, uh, you know, when I, addiction is it's a very tricky thing. Like and, you know, when you, and I didn't have no idea what addiction. I was like I said, I was 28 years old. It just went back to that kind of from a first team all star. I'm in New York City. Never did a drug in my life. Never did anything. Never smoked pot. Never did anything. So I'm out with the guys, the same thing. A Saturday night in New York City after a game. Go over our third cup, our by far our best team, and someone hands me this thing. So I really, I honestly made a 30 second decision to do this, not knowing that it was going to take me this path because I didn't know I had this gene because I've never activated it. I never did anything, you know? So now, that I do this in New York City, in 30 seconds, I make a decision that really puts my life in chaos for the next 24 years. That, that was the decision I made in 30 seconds to try that cocaine, now that I know it's cocaine, that activated this gene in my head that changed my life for a long time because it put an obsession that I didn't know. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't do nothing. I just thought I was having a good time that night, you know? And next thing you know... You know, it's kind of taken over my my head. You know, and I, it's hard to explain if you know that. It take it's starting to you know make decisions. I wasn't doing it all the time. I wasn't doing it a lot, but I, I was thinking about it. I wasn't focused completely 100. percent Then then the injury happened when I hit Pilon. Already activated my addiction. 
you know, to a point where I I, I, gen- I, I kicked that gene into work, and then next thing you know, I, I'm, I'm in the hospital with the uh, with the opiates and the pain pills, and that's where, you know, that's where it kind of all started. And you know, I got a taste for it, and you know, maybe if I didn't do the cocaine that night, I would nothing would have happened. I don't know, you know, but I know that 30 second decision now that I made in New York City kind of changed the path of my life for a long time, you know. It's funny you say that because when I was coaching youth sports, I would always tell the kids, you know, at an early age, at nine years old, every second of your life counts. And, and that drives yeah. it home. One 30-second split decision. Uh, you, know, you would tell kids that, you know, you never know when the scout's out there watching you. So if you're for two seconds, you're, you're, you're tying your shoe and not paying attention. Or in school, you don't study. Every moment of your life counts. And, and that really drives it home. You know, the Kings then trade you to the Rangers in 97. Yeah. The Rangers intervene, and you spent a, a part of the summer of 98 at a Los Angeles area rehabilitation facility. Yeah. One of your regular visitors was teammate Wayne Gretzky, who said about you, I think the reason people were so drawn to Kevin is he would give you the shirt off his back to anybody who needed anything. A ride, somebody to talk to, Kevin was always there. He was comfortable hanging out with the captain or the young guys on a team. He was one of those guys that nobody disliked. While... Not the pre-injury Kevin Stevens. You still had a couple of good years with the Rangers. But then January twenty second, 2000, there's another turning point in your life. Can you take our listeners back to that night in St. Louis and what transpired? And, again, a decision that really could have even had a worse outcome than it did. But can you you walk us through that night? Yeah, that was, um, yeah, it was with the Rangers. I was hurt. I had hurt my ankle, you know. I was kind of. You know, I was trying to stay clean. I was trying not to drink. I was, you know, I was just trying to do all the right things. But I really had no program. Like you know, now that I know about, you know, uh, you know, getting sober and things, I needed. I didn't have anything. I was just trying to like white knuckle things. And it wasn't going to work because addiction is more strong. So that night, I was hurt. I watched the game. We stayed overnight. And I went out with a couple of people I shouldn't have been out with, not teammates or anything, and then. You know, it was late at night, I was drunk again, I was waiting, you know, and then I ended up going to a hotel and having a little, like, in the room having a party there, and I was with some really bad people, and they, you know, very fortunate. You know what? I got the cops came, and they were, you know, the lady at the front desk kind of saved my life, and a cab driver that helped out. It was just a very chaotic scene, but there was real bad people involved, you know, from the other side. And then it, it would have turned out a lot worse if the cops didn't come now. I can look at it and kind of look back at the whole sequence of play. If these cops didn't knock on the door, I probably would have been dead that night. That's just, that's the nature of addiction, though. Like, like for me, when I'm in it, I, kind of, I look at that as normal, you know, because I'm in it. I'm, you know, it's not, it's, it's a sick, sick thing to say, but now that I'm sober, clean, and so I know, you know, my thinking is so different. I was in this, you know, I was in this addictive thinking, and I'm in the middle of it, and I'm just taking chances, like, you know, I wouldn't go near this place. East St. Louis is one of the worst places in America, you know. And, and I, I'm stuck, you know, with people that I don't know that live on the street that are, are killers, you know. And I found that out later. And then um, it's just, it's just addiction takes you to the worst places. It takes you in the worst areas. It makes you do things that you never ever thought you'd do. And uh, you know, I can look at it now, but. It take, addiction, all it does is keep taking and taking and taking. And I had no idea 
about this addiction thing. You know, even so I went into my first rehab and kind of realized what, what was going on, you know. And, you know, believe it or not, that wasn't even rock bottom. After the rest, you leave the Rangers, go to rehab for a couple of months. When you get out, you sign with the Flyers. After 23 games, you're yeah. traded back to Pittsburgh. You play your final 32 games of your NHL career. You re- and after retired, you basically said that you stayed sober because you had to. You said you were so miserable. You didn't drink. I didn't do drugs because I couldn't. But there was no happiness, no solution in my life where I could live without drugs. Even though I wasn't using, it was still controlling my life. On top of that, about a year after retiring, you hurt your neck while lifting weights. A friend of yours gives you Percocet to deal with the pain. This quickly grew into dependence on opioids, which is now a national problem, and we're, we're finally getting it out in the open, and there, there's a, a big yeah. push to, to cure you know, people of opiate addiction. Um, you basically said that it was a physical pull greater than anything you've ever felt. If people thought you were in rock bottom in St. Louis, what happens over the next five years is absolutely bone-chilling. Can you tell our listeners about what happened during your opioid addiction, the toll it had on you? Your family, your finances, and where it eventually landed you. Yeah, you know, opiate, like like you said, it got hurt. Uh, I was retired. I kind of got hurt in, uh, in the gym, and someone gave me these things. And you know, once I got a taste of the opiate, I, like I said, my 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 cocaine. And, you know, I was I like I said, I wasn't doing it all the time. But I was thinking about it, you know. And when I wasn't thinking about, it, I was doing it. So it's like. It was controlling my life, it was making decisions in my life, and it was making bad decisions. And you know, when the opiates came in, the cocaine was gone. Like, you know, I, I depended on all the pain medication and oxycodone, oxycodone, whatever pain medication I could get, and I took it. And uh, you know, I, I you get you get in this mindset, and you know, once you get you do it for a little while, and your body gets. So you need it all the time. And, like, you know, you go through phases where, you know, someone, you know, I went into rehab a couple of times, didn't get it, came out and stayed sober for a while, didn't get it. And, you know, I had a tough time, like, trying to figure out what, you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know why I had such a tough time. I just couldn't get it, you know, and it was like I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to give it. I wanted to stop a little bit so I could play around with it. And, like, we all know. Anybody that knows anything about opiate addiction or heroin or fentanyl, there's no playing around with it. There's no, there's no like, you know, play with it. You know, you don't do it. And like, that's what, you know, about speaking now, and it's all about education because drugs are going to get here. Like, drugs, opiates, heroin, fentanyl, it's getting here. So we're not going to be able to stop all that. We have to, we have to educate people and to not do it because once you do it, it makes you feel better. Like, you know, when you're hurt, you know, that first few times, you're going to feel better. Then it's going to hook you. You know, that's what happens. Like, you know, if you, you know, now, you know, the fentanyl, you don't even have a second chance sometimes. But with the pain pills, it makes you feel better. It makes you feel better for a month or so. These are now, oh, my God, and you get sick. You know, and then it controls your mind. And then it's a mental thing. And the mental obsession is as bad as the physical obsession. And, you know, it took me a long time. Like, it took me, I lost, you know, I lost my family. I, you know. I have them now. Like, I've always had them, but, you know, I, I got to get divorced. My wife couldn't live with me. And, you know, I had three great kids, and, like, you know, now it's, you know, it's tough. You know, I'm trying to, <clears throat> trying to do the best I can do, but, you know, addiction starts to run your life. When that, when that little pill starts calling the shots, and you need that pill before you can do anything. It's not about getting high. It's just about survival for that day. 
it's a brutal, brutal way to live. And I know a lot of people get stuck in this thing, and, I, and that's how it happened with me. It was just kind of like I get hurt. I try to do them, and I like them, and next thing you know, I'm full blown. I can't get out of it. All at all, and once you're full blown, once you're in it, it's very hard to pull out of it because your mental state is like this is okay, and this you know it just it just it just takes and takes and takes until you you know until you hit rock bottom, which you know I. My rock bottom basically was when the FBI came through my door, you know, and that had to be. I'm talking about choices, you know. I made that one choice in New York City in 30 seconds, changed my life for 24 years. Now I get I get these guys come through my door, sit in there, and and it's like now I go to jail for six or seven days in a federal prison, which, you know, the federal court system is not good. You know, it's a 97 percent. They, they, you go to jail, you know, they don't let you out. So I get out after six or seven days sitting in there thinking what choice I'm going to make. And I was lucky enough to make a right-hand choice and learn about, you know, to live in the right way and getting clean and getting off all this stuff to have, like, feel like I have a purpose again, you know. It doesn't happen overnight. Like, you know, if you're listening and you're addicted and, you're, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to happen in 20 days. You're not going to be able to turn your life around after you've been out there for 20 years, you know. But it takes time, and, and, and there's hope, and it works. But, you know, I had to go through a lot of pain. Like I said, you can look at my hockey career. You know, it's 40, 40, 50, 50 drugs, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it goes 20, 20, 20, 10. You know, it's like I should have 600 goals in the league, you know? Absolutely. You, you were definitely on the road to a Hall of Fame career. Um, interesting, you, you mentioned um, – the time in prison, you go before the judge. You basically, um, so many letters, so many people spoke on your behalf. Mm-hmm. You addressed the court as well. Judge O'Toole gave you a ten thousand dollar fine, three years probation, with the condition that you be involved in public speaking and anti drug educational efforts. Just like back in the nineties, when you got your opportunity in the NHL, you made the best of it. You spoke at local high schools on a radio program about addiction that you co-host, Cross Check, and you started a foundation called Power Forward dedicated to raising awareness about addiction. Tell us more about Power Forward, how people can donate, how schools or organizations can contact you to speak to their students. Yeah, it's, uh, my, the website is powerforwardnow.org. It's a website that just basically tells us about what we're doing. It has like our radio show, like Crosscheck, Summons Abuse Radio Show. is We do taping on Wednesdays. We have, we have great people on there. We have a lot of... You know, we have Theo Fleury. We have a lot of guys that go through the same thing I did, a lot of different guys. And then, you know, we have, you know, Carl. We have, we have people on that the struggle with addiction that gets better. It's all about, you know, for my program, it's pretty much all about hope because, you know, I was hopeless. You know, there's a lot of people that are hopeless, and people hang in there with you. They hang in there with you. For some reason, you get it. You know, and that's what it's all about. It's about helping other people. For me, it's about really helping other people. I'm on this really, I'm lucky enough to be so feeling good and, and have a platform because people like you know I, I'm not being great I'm not anything I'm just like but I played hockey so even, even if you go to high school they show a little video they, these people weren't born when I was playing but they show a little video and it kind of opens their eyes wow this guy played hockey but and my, my story is like I was at the top you know it was like and, I, and I'm like just like those people there I, mean, I was sitting in that high school and people came in and said this is never going to be me and now I'm up there talking to them. You know, I was, if you would have told me how to put anything in front of hockey, you're crazy. And I'm silly and insane, you know, to do that. But 
addiction is stronger than anything. I know that now. It's a day-to-day program for me, and I just try to, you know, I try to help whoever I can help. You know, and it's not like I don't have anything better than anybody else. I am, you know, my wisdom is not anybody, but it's, you know, I know it works. I know people can get their life back. They just give it a chance. It's about, it's about surrender, and it's, and it's very hard when you're in it. And like I told you before, when you're in it, you can't see it. you got to put yourself on it. When you're in it, you think everything's fine. You know, you have no friends anymore, but, you know, you hang with people that you shouldn't be hanging with. And, you know, when you get out of it, all that stuff comes back if you do the right thing. I was, I was just looking at guys. I had a lot of great friends, even though they kind of had a distance themselves from me. But as soon as I got myself in a good position, they all they were there again. So I was very, very fortunate to have those people. Kev, I have to tell you, I'm so impressed by the work you're doing. I'm glad that you're back to being arty. And while my regret is I never got to talk to you in a postgame in your career, I hope that someday in the near future I can walk into the Hurricanes locker room and interview your son Luke, who I believe yeah. turned 21 today. Um, yeah. So I know that Ray Shero says you have a natural eye for talent, that you see things and prospects that others can't. So I'm asking you to take off your dad hat for a second and put on your scout hat and tell me <laughs> what you would see in Luke as a player going forward in the NHL. Yeah, Luke's, you know, Luke's got, um, he's a sophomore at Yale, and he's, he's, he's a good player. Luke's big, he's 6'5". I wonder where he gets that from. <laughs> <laughs> he's a big kid. Like, and he can, you know, he can play. Like, he's, he's got, but there's so many good players now, guys. Like, when I, when I was in college, like, and, you know, you had the real good players, then you had, like, some bottom players, you know, in, in, in Division One. You didn't have a lot. Now everybody's pretty good. You don't have a lot of top, top-end guys like you had, but you have, a lot of good guys because everybody's in shape. Everybody works at 12 months a year, and everybody can skate. So it's all about working and working hard. He's he's got a lot of upside. He's big and he can skate. So that's like, and he gets to the net and he forechecks hard. You know, he's got some. He's got stuff to learn, but he's young. He's got two more years at Yale. Jack and Princeton this weekend. So they're, they're they're playing well. He's getting better, and that's you know that's the only thing about. All these stuff is the upside. I have another guy that's going to Yale too. It's weird, you know. I have my other son. He's in Nobles and Greenville Prep School out here in Dedham. He's going into Yale in a couple of years too. So I'm very lucky. I've got my ex-wife. I have a daughter that plays soccer up at Union. So just been. I've been very fortunate. My kids are the great kids. I'm very lucky. Well, you know that that gives us something to watch. Also, yeah. you know, catch those yeah. Yale games, especially I think Quinnipiac games are televised down here. Also, to yeah. close, I have one more family member I, I need you to talk a little bit about because I'm not sure if Kevin Stevens is on the air with us tonight. If it wasn't for her, can you tell us a little bit about your sister Kelly's unwavering battle to get her brother back and what it's meant to you? Yeah, Kelly's been great. You know, Kelly, she's she's always been kind of like the. Uh, you know, she went to BC too. She was on the top of her class. Very smart. She had a great first year working for us for a while. She got to retire last year. I don't know, six or seven maybe. So she was she she was successful. So she decided to kind of take an interest in maybe you know, helping me get through all this stuff. And uh, yeah, without her, I'd never be able to do it. You know, she's helped me in so many different ways. You know, and she's kind of she's kind of taking the ball, and she just tells me like you know. Where I gotta go and what I gotta do, and like you know, it really makes it up. You know, she's good at it. She's very organized, and it helps me like just show up and, and do what I have to do. And she's a big reason why I'm not sitting behind bars right now, too. You know, it's kind of like yeah, 
she took an initiative to help me, you know, take take the first step and get through this stuff. And she's been she's been there for me. I mean, she does a great job for me, and I'm very lucky to have her as my sister. You know? Kev, thanks so much for your time tonight. We'd love to have you on down the road to just talk about some of the prospects uh, getting into yeah. the draft or even some of the playoff rounds in hockey. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, loved you when you were here in New York. Hated you when you were in Pittsburgh, but you know, that's, you know, that's a testament to how good you are. So thanks so much, Kev. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. Kevin Stevens, two-time Stanley Cup champion, founder of Power Forward.